Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to City Beautiful Church. Today, we're beginning a new series called What to Do When Everything is Terrible. Now, I'm recording this on a Thursday um, in anticipation of Sunday, and I don't know exactly what the, <clears throat> the general feeling or sentiment within the community is by Sunday, because I don't know what's going to happen between now and then. Many things, I'm sure, um, but I know today from some of the people that I've been in discussions with over the past couple days. Um, people are feeling heavy. Um, there's a lot happening in our country right now. And, um, and that was a big part of the reason that I really felt like the Lord was calling us to face those things head on. Because I think a lot of times when things seem like they're out of control and seem like they're chaotic on the outside, there's actually an invitation for us to go deeper inside of us, to be rooted and grounded in the truth of who God is. Not so that we can escape the reality of the world around us, um, but to, to know what it is that we are bound to so that we can show up for the things outside of us um, and do that honestly and have a kingdom mindset um, when we engage with the brokenness of the world. So I'm going to pray and we're just going to, today's going to be mostly an introduction, kind of highlighting what this series is going to be about. And then we're going to really kick things into gear next week. Uh, so Heavenly Father, um, we really do attest to the truth that you are here um, and that you are with us, that you are for us, you are not against us. You are the God who turns curses into blessings. And whether it's Thursday afternoon in an empty building, or it's Sunday morning in someone's garage, or it's next Wednesday afternoon half a world away, um, you are still here. Those things are still true. And we can tap into that reality here and now um, to remind ourselves of your constant presence to us. And so God, as we stand on the precipice of this new season, I pray that you would go before us and that you would hem us in from behind, um, that you would speak so clearly and so profoundly to each one of us that we cannot help but be transformed by what it is that you desire to do in this season. We wanna lay our will, our desires, our agendas at your feet and constantly say, not our will, but yours be done. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're doing this series called What to Do When Everything is Terrible. And as I've told you before, I wanted to just call it Everything is Terrible. Uh, but some people pointed out to me that my sense of humor doesn't always translate so well. Uh, so I thought we'd give it a little bit more of a proactive spin. Um, what I don't want this to be is a series that is prescriptive and escapist. And a large part of what I want to do today is talk about that, sort of setting the tone for this series um, and then talking about how we're going to to do it. But this is the kind of the, the main question that I want to answer over the next couple of months um, as we're wrapping out the, the calendar year for the church and then anticipating um, Advent, where we start again in telling the story of Jesus to give context to our lives today. So how do we turn to Jesus in the darkest moments of our lives when everything seems terrible? What does it actually look like? 
um, when we're recognizing whether this is the pain and suffering that you and I might be experiencing on a personal level, when we're bearing witness to the pain and suffering in the lives of the people that we're connected to, or maybe it's just through the new cycle where we're overwhelmed and inundated um, by all of these stories of pain and suffering and tragedy. How do we actually turn to Jesus in these things uh, to be strengthened, to find context, and then to find a way to move forward? If we're honest, you know, um, many of us, when we hit a wall in our faith, that's when we begin to question everything. That as soon as the answers don't work for us anymore, uh, we feel like that's where we just have to pack it in and give up. Um, but the reality is when we, especially when we listen to our brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers throughout church history, um, that hitting a wall in our faith is actually a very normal part of what it means to be a Christian. Um, St. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. When we're so overwhelmed by the reality of life that we find it very hard to stay connected to God and to be reminded that Jesus is truly with us and for us. And I think that's because a lot of us have been raised with, with an understanding of faith that faith means always having the right answers. And whatever comes along, there's some sort of theological category or there's a, there's a practical prescription, kind of a take two of these and call me in the morning form of Christianity um, that begins to back, like fall apart when we enter into adulthood and we deal with very real issues in our world. When we're dealing with a pandemic, when we're dealing with racism, when we're dealing with uh, cancer, when we're dealing with the loss of a job or a loved one, all of these different things like that, a lot of times that neatly packaged prescriptive faith that we grew up with um, doesn't really seem to fit the bill. And, but we also don't have the tools necessarily to know how to maneuver those times when we hit the wall, when we experience a dark night of the soul, which many people would say you're actually going to experience four to five times in your Christian journey. So I just want to go ahead and prepare all of you for that wherever you are in your faith. Um, but what do we do when we hit those walls, when we don't have an answer? when we don't know the right thing to say or the right thing to do to make it go away. That's what this series is really going to be about, staring honestly at those very big questions about pain and suffering, but knowing that there's something deeper there for all of us to explore. And the way that I wanted to do that was actually to turn to some Old Testament wisdom, some of the oldest books in the Bible um, to uncover in them something about how we engage with God in the midst of tragedy. So we're going to be focusing on um, the Psalms of lament and penitence. Did you know that two-thirds of the Psalms, which are kind of like the hymn book uh, for the Jewish people, two-thirds of them are laments crying out to God in pain. Um, we're going to be looking at the books of Jeremiah uh, and Lamentations, the same prophet that wrote both of them, um, just crying out to God in the midst of incredible suffering and oppression. Um, we'll look at Job, which is actually the oldest book in the Bible in terms of when it was written. And the whole thing is an epic poem that answers this question, what do you do when everything around you is terrible? That's the whole point of the earliest piece of scripture that we have. And then finally, one of my favorites, Ecclesiastes, which is a wisdom that's so offensive to our conventional wisdom when everything falls apart in life, that we know there's gotta be something true in that where God is realigning our priorities. And as I was 
kind of putting together where I want to go in this series and looking at these specific scriptures, I was reminded of this adage that we often hear, maybe when you were in, um, in high school civics, that history is written by the winners. You know, it's, it's very hard to have an objective understanding of history. It's usually written by those who kind of came out on top. And that's true, except when it comes to the Bible that the this, this story of the Jewish people and then the early Christian church was written by people who were oppressed and obliterated and squeezed at every turn. But in that, they find this incredible resilience because they continue to turn to the God that is with them and for them and to allow him to lead them. And so much of our, of our Christian Bible the Old Testament bit and the New Testament bit is about living in that reality of being squeezed by the pain of life, yet in that, being able to connect with God and his goodness. Because this is something that I think so many of us, I, 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 I'm so angry at the modern church for not having fully expressed this, that the Christian journey is one in which we integrate joy and suffering. But too many Christians today have grown up with a gospel that's about somehow escaping from pain and suffering or tells us if you're feeling these things, well, you've done something wrong or God's not really real and the Christian life is just about supposedly going from glory to glory and you're not supposed to feel any of those supposed negative feelings. Or on the other side, perhaps, you know, God is in control and so whatever happens is because God has specifically ordained those things to happen. He meant it to happen. And it leads us into these questions of thinking, well, God doesn't seem to be very good when these are the things that are happening around us. And so much of that comes from these non-Christian influences on the modern American evangelical church. But when we actually come to the scripture, we find a very different reading of of what God is like, of how we are to engage in the pain and suffering in our lives, and indeed how the work of the Spirit of Jesus in us is integrating joy and suffering together, that those two things are not mutually exclusive. Too often, we've reduced faith to just looking for the little takeaway, the little practical nugget that helps me to get through the day or makes this week a little bit you know, less miserable than last week. And it's this kind of counterfeit spiritual formation. Just tell me what to do or tell me what to think so that I don't have to really go in. I don't have to really go deep. I can just continue to behave like a good little Christian boy or a good little Christian girl. Um, and it's this false formation um, because our approach to Christianity is more about us getting something than it is about us being given over to something. And then we even see this with the way that we do the Bible. We only really focus on the bits of the Bible that give us something, they give us that nugget, they give us um, that little adrenaline rush of hope that we need for that day. And then most of the Bible doesn't really seem to do that. A lot of the Bible actually kind of bums us out because it's really seemingly negative or despairing or whatever it is. And it doesn't really seem applicable to our modern lives. But then we enter into a season like we are now where we cannot ignore the pain and suffering of our lives. And as I've said many times before, I believe that what God is doing is apocalypse 
apocalypsing. He's revealing these things that have always been present underneath the surface, but now we're seeing them um, brought up in the midst of all of the chaos of the world that we have to reconcile with that. Is our faith primarily about us getting something out of God to make our lives better? Or is it actually about recognizing that we have been given over to God and to his story and that we're being formed by that story? And I think then when we begin to realign, we recognize faith is not about certainty. It's not about having the right answers. Faith is about participation. It's about showing up especially when we don't have the right answers, especially when all of the other stories in the culture around us are telling us something very differently. And so the task for you and I then becomes to learn how to be honest with the way that our lives truly are, not to import narratives that explain things away so that we don't have to deal with them, but also to have a resolution and a perseverance to move through those things with the spirit of Jesus. Because if we don't have his spirit, we'll collapse under the pressure of how painful life can be or we'll hide from real life in the name of faith. We will hide within the walls of the church. We will bury our noses in Christian uh, self-help books and podcasts so that we don't have to look at the reality of the world around us. And so my hope in this series is that we learn to live in that creative tension between honesty and perseverance to know where it is that God wants to take us as he forms us to be more truly Christ-like because of the things that are going on in our lives. And so we are going to be spending most of our time in the Old Testament in this series, but I actually wanted to frame a lot of the, the, the conversation today in a, in a little piece of the New Testament. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And this is another wonderful example to me in the Christian narrative where we see the integration of joy and suffering, that the early followers of Jesus didn't fall into this false dichotomy that you and I do, that either I'm joyful, which we really mean happy, or I'm suffering and everything's miserable, but somehow they were able to live in that creative tension, that Paul was very honest with the way that his life was going, and he talks about it a lot all through his letters. Um, He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to uh, paint it up a, a winning picture of his life in order to make Jesus seem more attractive. He's very honest with his life, but because of that, he's had this revelation of who God really is in Jesus that gives him that perseverance to move on. So, I'm going to read this portion of Romans 5, 1 through 5, kind of slowly and meditatively, and I want you, just like we were doing last week, to allow the words to rush over you. Don't feel like you need to assign um, meaning to anything just yet, but allow the spirit to reveal to you something in this um, that he might really want to be wanting to speak to you. Because Romans 5 is, it's one of those super dense pieces of scripture where it's like, as soon as we start reading it, we, we click off because we're so familiar with the language that we actually lose the meaning. You know, it's like, I think it was Dallas Willard said that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. So I want us to slow down. Even you'll, you've read this before, but really allow God um, to show you what he wants to show you in this passage. This is Romans chapter five, verses one through five.
Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I will just sit for a couple seconds and allow the Lord to speak to us there. Now, when I was reading that, I'm wondering if any of you are experiencing it like I honestly do sometimes where we just begin to glaze over. So it's like, therefore, since we have been justified through, and there it happens, you know, as soon as like justified through faith, we're like theology, uh, 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 uh. And it's like, these are the kinds of words that we all agree on. We're like, do you believe in grace? Yes, I believe in grace. And they go, what is it? And we have a hard time kind of explaining that because it's all these very Christian-y words. We sing these words in songs and we repeat them to one another and we use them in our prayers. But what are we actually talking about? So what I want to do is I want to take the first couple verses and just break down a couple of those phrases. And then I want to really focus in on that last little chain of thought that Paul gives us because I think that's so important to set the tone for this series. So number one, he says, since we have been justified through faith. What does that mean? Justification, uh, righteousness, it's the same word in Greek, and it basically means that you have been declared in right standing with God. Your relationship with God has been repaired because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And I really like the way N.T. Wright talks about that and the way he translates it in his portion of scripture. He says that we have covenant membership in God's family. That's what justification means. That because of what Jesus has done and your acceptance of that, you've now been made a member of God's family. Now, the cool thing about that is it, that has nothing to do with your moral standing or your performance or how good of a person that you might be. It's just now you're in on the family. Now, whether or not you're a good brother or a good sister or a bad brother or a bad sister, that comes later. 
there is a moral component, but this is about you have now been declared. You've been adopted into the family of God. So because we've been justified through faith, we now have, we're adopted into the family of God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace meaning from the word shalom, just meaning togetherness. Union. We now have intimacy with God because of what Jesus has done. We've been brought into the family. We now have a father. We were orphans without a home, but now we have a home, we have a family, and we have this intimate relationship with our father. And through him, we have gained access by faith. This is temple language. See, so Paul, in speaking Greek, he's kind of nodding towards the Jewish contingency of the church in Rome as well and saying, you've gained access by faith. Remember the, remember the whole temple thing and it's about entering into the holy place and you have to do the sacrifice in order. Now you have access through faith in Jesus as opposed to access through the law. So we've gained access by this faith into the grace in which we now stand. And again, grace, what do we mean by grace? Grace is the giftedness of being in the presence of God. Like, again, it's that temple image, like we're entering in and we get to be close to him. That's the grace in which we now stand. We don't have to be afraid of God. We don't have to be ashamed when we're in his presence. We don't have to feel like we're not enough because he has already decided that we are actually enough. And then we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Again, it's just like this train. I was like, what, Paul, what are you saying? So we break that down. Hope for Christians does not mean, gosh, I really hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. It's not this kind of wistful thinking about the future that maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, we have a preference. Hope for us is a confidence that because of who God says he is and what he's doing now, he's going to bring that thing to completion in the future. And so the hope of the glory, glory, again, temple language, the Shekinah glory of God was the manifest presence of God that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant, this kind of glowing ball of light. So the Israelites say, well, where's God? Oh, there he is. He's with us. And it was this symbol of God's withness. And then we look at Jesus as that. He is the glory of God. He is the manifest presence, the revelation of God in our midst. And so the hope of the glory of God means that we are confident that God is going to show up, that God will, is, will continue to reveal himself even more so as much as he's revealing himself now. So, it's really dense. We could do a series just on those first couple of verses. But then he, he, Paul goes on and he has this linear progression. I'm going to read that little bit to you again, okay? He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, okay? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, okay? So suffering, perseverance, character, hope. And you have to listen for that progression because those are the kinds of phrases that it, it's really important that we meditate on what's the connection between each of these things. What is Paul actually trying to tell us? So I think we begin with suffering. The interesting thing is Paul is saying in the, we glory in the midst of our suffering, okay? We don't glory in it. Like we don't take pleasure in the fact that we are suffering, 
Uh, that's kind of like a false martyrdom. And it, you, we hear this a lot of times, unfortunately, in the modern church today, where people feel like they're justified um, because they're being persecuted, um, which oftentimes just means you're being a jerk, honestly, if we're going to lay it out. Like, we don't glory in the fact that we, like in the suffering itself, but in the midst of suffering, real suffering, not imagined martyrdom, we still worship and praise God in the midst of it. I think that's very important for us to recognize because if we're not practicing worship as a discipline in the midst of our suffering, it's very easy for our suffering to become our primary lens through which we look at God. And so worship and thankfulness to God in the midst of those things recontextualizes our suffering. And oftentimes it's within our suffering that our resolution uh, to stay committed to God is evident. You know, it's easy to worship God and be thankful when everything's going our way. But when things get hard, are we still choosing union, peace, togetherness with him in that moment? And so suffering then becomes this opportunity for perseverance when suffering comes along. Again, not a question of if, but when. So we have to just go ahead and do away right now with this idea that if you're suffering somehow, that must be God punishing you or you've done something wrong, okay? There is, a, we'll talk about it in a minute, but there is certain kinds of suffering that is self-incurred, but there's plenty of suffering that is not. So it's not if you're suffering, it's when the suffering comes, it produces perseverance. And one of the things that I do feel like God is apocalypsing, re revealing in this time is our addiction to instant gratification when it comes to our faith journeys. That we pray the prayers and we go to church every Sunday and we do the Bible thing and then everything's supposed to turn out. Uh, and it's not. You know, like these things, the things that we want to see happen aren't necessarily happening. We've become so addicted to be to, to next day next day mail ordering whatever we want, or even you know us being blessed with the fact that we can order in our groceries right now, that we think that's how life should always work, and so we're entitled to instant gratification. But what Paul is saying is, it's only when you persevere through suffering um, that you begin to move on to the next element, which is character, actually being formed to look more like Jesus. You know, that instant gratification attitude, that entitlement that we deserve everything right now, and God is the divine ATM in the sky who gives us those things, it leads us to believe that character is kind of this Instagram-ready image that we've painted of our lives, that we can, again, produce this, this winning image for Jesus or whatever it is, but it's this counterfeit form of formation. It's all surface stuff that makes us look a certain way rather than starting from the core of who we are and transforming us to be a certain way in the world. And I think character is really only formed through perseverance. You can't learn character in an afternoon. You can't even just change your behavior to just try to be something. That's that self-righteous attitude. Like character only comes through persevering in the midst of suffering and trial. But that's the place where we find mature formation, where the spirit of Jesus is doing something in us from the inside out and changing our very nature. And then finally, character leads to hope. And I think the question that this bears for me 
is if we do not persevere through suffering, can we even genuinely lay claim to real hope? Okay? So hear me in this. In our addiction to instant gratification, we have a cheap form of hope. Again, that I hope that things will be better tomorrow. I hope that racism will go away. I hope that this pandemic will be over soon. If we try to escape from the reality of our lives, we hold on to this cheap form of hope, but we do not deserve to lay claim to the real thing because the real thing only comes once we have persevered and been formed to look more like Jesus. And I think that's really serious for us when you and I, when we hit a wall in our faith and then we're indignant because God's not showing up or it, the, the, the answers don't seem to be working anymore. We don't have any hope because we haven't persevered through that. So I think in a way, perseverance through suffering is hopeless by nature. But in that, we're trusting God. This is what, when, when Paul says earlier in Romans, I think it was in Romans 4, he says, Abraham hoped against hope. Like, it's almost like Abraham had to give hope to God and go, I don't have any hope, but you seem to have enough for both of us, so I'm just gonna keep maneuvering through this thing um, and let you take the lead. And it's not until we've been formed to look more like Jesus that we can hold on to Jesus-shaped hope. And so it's this confidence in the future based upon not our, even our own character, but on God's character and who he says he is and what he's going to do. So that's kind of Romans 5, kind of framing this. And I think naturally some of the big questions that come when we take on uh, a series like this, it's like where, where does suffering even come from? What are the things that God you know, allows or the things that God causes? Um, when we're talking about like the dichotomy between sovereignty and love, like is God sovereign, which means he's in control or is he loving, which means he's not in control and things that happen outside of his control. And you know, a lot of times the questions that we have, the very fancy um, theological term um, for those of you who are keeping track at home is theodicy, which is uh, how do we explain pain and suffering in the world in the light of who God is theologically. That's the whole thing. It's been a question for 2,000 years because guess what? Nobody solved it yet. Like if, it, if we already had an answer, we would have wrapped this one up like 1,700 years ago and would have moved on to something else. But we're still trying to figure out how does pain and suffering work in the reality of who God is. And so I think this brings me to the two truths upon which I will stake everything that I've ever said about God. And many of you are probably sick of hearing me talk about these two things. But again, it's so important because what we believe about God will determine what we believe about everything else, how we see ourselves, how we see other people, how we see the world around us. And so your attitude to the way the world is today to your own life, to pain and suffering within you, within the community, within the society right now, is directly influenced by your belief of what God is like, whether you realize it or not. And this is why it's always important to come back to these two truths. So the first one, of course, is God is with us, Emmanuel. And the second one is God turns curses into blessings. So the first one, when it comes to pain, suffering, tragedy, we keep thinking that we want answers and plans. 
Okay, so when you and I, when we're, when we're struggling, when we're suffering, we want to come to God or to other people and go, no, give me the answer. Like, what's the right answer? As if life is an equation to be solved. Um, and as the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, life is not a problem to be solved, but something to be experienced. You know, but many of us have believed, well, if we have the right answer, then that's going to somehow fix it. Or give me the plan. What's the, what's the three-step program that I can take on now to make my life less miserable than it was before. And that's that false spiritual formation that I was talking about. And we're wired to that. We expect that. And a lot of times, unfortunately, the modern church has reinforced that that's what this is about. Yeah, just make sure you've got the right answer to every question that comes along in life and you'll be set. Or just make sure that you have the plan and just follow the plan and everything's gonna be wonderful. So we keep thinking that we want answers and plans, but God has given us more than that. He's given us his presence. When Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago, he came not as a conquering warrior or a grand philosopher, but as an innocent baby. And they called him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I've preached before, I think that's why God chose to come as a baby, is first and foremost to teach us about presence, that everything else comes from presence and not before. Because if you and I are honest with each other, we're going to recognize that all the explanations in the world and all of the prescriptions and the, the take two of these in the more, and call me in the morning kind of spirituality doesn't actually heal pain or alleviate suffering. It can help sometimes to have the forensic analysis done on our lives, but it doesn't actually do anything to bring healing and hope. And when I think about God as revealed in Jesus, not the God of philosophy, the God who's defined by all the omnis, he's omnipresent and he's omniscient and he's this, that, and the other, where we get into all of these philosophical places that get us stuck in understanding who God really is. But when I first and foremost think of the God revealed in Jesus most powerfully on the cross, like that is the best vision of God that we have ever or will ever have is Jesus on the cross. That's what God is really like. Then we begin to realize the heart of God revealed in Jesus is his solidarity. God co-suffering alongside of us and saying, I am with you. It's the first thing that God ever utters to anybody in scripture. And it's the first thing that God is speaking to your heart today to say, I'm with you. And until you understand that, none of the rest of it will find any context. You know, I've talked about this before, but a couple years ago when uh, my dear friends Mark and Shannon had their first miscarriage and then another one and then another one, our close group of friends, it's like we, we had these moments. It was like there's this threshold of friendship and it's like we came up to that and it's like, are, are we going to go there? Are we, are we going to talk about this? Are we going to what do we do? And I remember feeling as a friend and even as a pastor, this temptation, like, well, I, I got to have the right answer. How do I explain? Well, this is what God's doing and this is what it's like. And this is, blah, blah, blah. and I, I had to put all of that aside and I had to allow my heart to be broken by the pain of the tragedy that I was experiencing in my dear friend's lives. Because until that happened, there was no amount of theological assessment that I could give that would have had any sort of meaning. 
And I think that's the core of what we see in God. It's not the God of explanations, but the God of co-suffering, broken, open presence. And I think when we do talk about the nature of God, we often pit these things at opposed. Either God is sovereign, which means he's in control of everything. So God, what we then have to say is like, oh God, yes, God causes suffering. So God caused the pandemic. He created the coronavirus and he sent it to earth and he's probably punishing us for something. You know, this, it happened after Hurricane Katrina. Um, I remember it happened when there was these tornadoes coming through Iowa a couple years ago. Like prominent Christian leaders said God is trying to do something. I remember with Katrina, it was specifically God is punishing America for gay people because he's in control and he must obviously do that sort of thing. So we get this, God is sovereign, he's so control, but then we start working with that and then all of a sudden love kind of goes out the window. Or on the other side, God is loving, but incredibly permissive. That God, he, he really likes us and God's kind of in the corner hoping that we'll pick him for the dance, but there's all this stuff going on in the world and he just really doesn't want to interfere. Like he's so loving that he's actually very, very permissive. And we have this kind of false dichotomy between love and sovereignty, but how do we weave those things together to see God as he truly is? I believe God is sovereign, but not because he causes evil to happen. We don't pin evil on God, who's defined as goodness. Evil is, the, as St. Augustine says, evil is the privation of the good. Evil is kind of like a non-entity. It's the lack of goodness in a, in a thing or a moment or an event. So God is sovereign, not because he's in control of everything in the sense that he causes or ordains evil to happen, but God is sovereign because he can turn curses into blessings. Because God moves through history with us, recognizing our free will, recognizing the brokenness of the world. But because he is steadfastly committed to being with us, which I think is the definition of love itself, God is capable of taking any event in human history, any event in your personal story, and the thing that was meant for evil, the thing that was meant to cut you down, to kill you, God actually brings new life in that. And you know this from your story with God. Events don't change. The horrible things that have been said and done to you in your life, God didn't change those things. But he has changed the outcome where those things were meant to kill you, to diminish you. They brought you new life and they brought you intimacy with him. There's this beautiful little line in the story of Joseph in uh, Genesis chapter 50. We'll wait for the train to go by. <laughs> Where, you know, I told the story a few weeks ago when I was preaching with Alex. Like, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and he's abandoned, but he finds this place of privilege within, um, within Pharaoh's household. He rises to prominence, becomes this great administrator. His family comes to him in famine, and then they find out, oh my gosh, this is our brother who we thought was dead, who's now our provider. And they're terrified of him, but Joseph calms them down. And he says, hey, it's okay. I think this was all part of what God was trying to do this whole time. And there's this little line in Genesis 50, verse 20 says, you intended to harm me, talking to his brothers, but God intended it for good 
to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Did God want or ordain Joseph to be thrown into a pit and sold into slavery? I doubt it. But God looked at it and said, I can do something with that. And the thing that was meant to kill Joseph, I'm actually going to use not just to save his life, but his family's life. What dramatic irony we have there. And I'll tell you what, it was such a revealing moment for me several years ago when I realized when it comes to this question of evil and suffering and where does it come from and how's that connected with God, the Bible itself does not seem to be particularly interested in answering that question of where does evil and suffering come from. It's not in there. There's, there's no forensic analysis that goes, by the way, this is where all this stuff comes from. Not in any concrete terms. It does speak about the, you know, the sin of mankind, the deception of Satan, and the general brokenness of the world, but that's more of a evidence of the reality today, but it doesn't really pin where that comes from. But the Bible is tremendously interested in showing us what God is doing in the midst of pain and suffering. So the Bible doesn't seem interested in telling us where evil comes from, but very interested in how God is overcoming evil through Jesus Christ and the church. And so part of following the God that is revealed in Jesus is that we trust that he is good, even when, especially when we're experiencing terrible things, because that's us abdicating our control our desire to name the narrative, to live according to prescriptions, to have these little succinct explanations of how the world is supposed to work and to genuinely trust him to lead us. Part of my process in this series is that I'm reading two books by C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain and A Grief Observed. And I was so struck by this quote from C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And of course, the biggest question in all of this is what is God shouting at us right now? in the midst of the pain of the world, of our community? What is God shouting at you right now because of the pain that you're experiencing? And are you willing to listen? Are you afraid of him? Are you afraid of what it is that he might say? Or can you trust that he is good? And whatever he wants to speak to you is for your betterment to help you to grow, to become more mature, to become more Christ-like so that you can partner with him in revealing his kingdom in your time. I wouldn't say that I'm excited about this series. There is some macabre uh, interest in pouring over these scriptures but on a deeper level, I recognize that I myself have to work through this as well with Jesus. That I have to face the pain and the suffering in my own life. 
and to not rely on my coping mechanisms to numb out, to turn off, um, to just lean on cheap prescriptions in order to get by, but to genuinely slow down my spiritual journey to allow God to speak and to reveal to me some deeper truths so that I can be shaped to look more like him so that I can show up for others. And I hope that you will too, that, you're, that you have that kind of courage to let him lead you in this series. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna enter back into worship. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for all of your dear ones that are tuned in, whether this is Sunday morning or Monday afternoon or Wednesday evening or three weeks down the road, whatever it might be, I thank you. God, would you continue to reveal to us, first of all, that you are Emmanuel, you are with us. That's the primary way that you want us to understand you, your solidarity, your connectedness, your steadfastness to us. And secondly, God, would you remind us that you are a God who turns curses into blessings, that you don't change the events of history, but you do change the outcomes. Remind each one of us of the moments where you've done that for us so that in gratitude and confidence, we can hope for those things to happen again. Lord, guide our community over this next season. Speak to the deepest parts of who we are because it's when we choose to slow down, to go inward, to listen to your voice there, that we will be strengthened, that we will be reassured, and that we, we can begin to have the, the resolution to look out at the brokenness of the world with the compassionate hearts and to say, God, show me what you would have me be in this moment, what you would have me say, what you would have me do, where you would have me go, so that I can continue to be part of your healing of the whole world. We pray these things in the strong name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.